Well, hi again, everybody. Welcome into Unanchored Boston with Bob Lobel. I'm Mike Lynch, and as always, our show is brought to you by Cold Springs RV, your destination for all things camping and where? We're in New Hampshire, of course, and the great George Gray at George Gray's Lexington Toyota, 409 Mass Ave in Lexington. George Gray's Lexington Toyota, a good friend to us and a good friend to everybody else. All right, Bob Lobel, you always handle the intros. You got a great one right here. You can never have enough mics on the show. And we get two of them today, so take it away, Lobel. Too many mics and plenty of Harvards, I can tell you that. One too many Harvard. That's uh, not me. No, it's not you, and it's not me either. It's all right. Here's the deal, Mr. Milbury. It's great to have you here, but I'm going to go right back. I had to find out last night what day christmas eve eve fell on back in 1979 december 23rd and was on a sunday night and what was convenient about that is that of course you didn't know it but you did went a long way to launching my career it was one of the first nights that i was on television on channel four doing the sports and it was christmas eve eve the 23rd of december a sunday night and the sunday night sports featured a game the Bruins played against the Rangers in Madison Square Garden. And, of course, you know the situation. You know the story. Some of the great video of all time. And if Lynch, you will tell you that there's nothing better for a sportscaster than to have great video. And so right out of the gate, I was uh, brought into this uh, crazy world of broadcasting. As you know, it's a crazy world. Um uh, with some of the best video was possible. And you were a big part of that. Stan Jonathan was number one over the boards. Well, he no, was the one who was cut. No, 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 no. O'Reilly was number one. Yes. O'Reilly went into the stands because Jonathan got cut by a paper or something from a fan or something, right? Well, one of the fans reached over and grabbed Jonathan's stick. The two teams were milling about. It was after the game was over. And I, just by way of explanation, I was not on the ice. No, you were in the locker room. I was in the locker room because in, in Madison Square Garden at that time, they'd throw anything at you. You know, they'd throw bottles, they'd throw vodka bottles or cigarette lighters or whatever they could get their hands on. There was no security to speak of. And so we won the game. I mean, Espo had a breakaway with like 10 seconds left. I don't know if you remember that. And somebody threw a tennis ball. Right in front of him. And he always claims that's why he missed the uh, breakaway against Cheevers. Anyway, we win a big game. I'm happy. I leave the ice. But Al Secord was skating past some Rangers, and he kicked out the skates of Ulf Nielsen. So John Davidson, their goalie, got really ticked off, skated down. Now all of a sudden, they're mill both teams are milling around, minus me. I'm in the locker room looking at the cold Budweiser on ice. And, and – this guy reached over, grabbed Stan Jonathan's stick. Remember, the glass was really low at that time. It wasn't like it is today. Well, that, you changed all that. <laughs> we, did, we did have a part in that. And, uh, and Terry, not being a person of sane state of mind. Remember, he wasn't shy. Okay. Oh, no, he wasn't shy. Took offense to the fact that the, the guy had stolen Jonathan's stick and climbed up the glass and went after him. And, of course, the captain leads the way for everybody else to climb up into the stands. And the next thing you know it, there's, you know, half the team is in the stands. And, by the way, 
they were doing a serious number and a bunch of fans down below. Not, none of that got caught on camera enough to get them, you know, charged criminally, but um, there was some serious stuff going on down there. So about this point, I, well, I, I, I have of all people jumps in after O'Reilly. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, I, I was in the locker room. Cheevers came in and I said, what's going on? And he said, where is it? I said, where is everybody? He said, ah, there's some sort of beef going on. So I'd already taken my helmet off and my gloves were off and the stick was gone and probably had the cold butt in my hand by now. But I ran back out to the, to the uh, ice surface and I never made it to the ice surface because I saw all the guys in the stands. So I just walked up the stairs in my skates. And I have to tell you that it was a pretty good moment in a, in, in a weird kind of way. I, I First of all, I was happy going home for Christmas, big win. Now I come back out and there's complete chaos in the stands. And I have no idea what's going on or why I should be there, except that my teammates are there and I, and I got to go there and sort of help out, I guess. And so I was went from this happy state of mind to my heart racing like a thousand beats a minute. It was just like, but walking through the crowd, you know, I, I've shrunk a little, but I was about 6'2 at the time and on skates. And I, I had the feeling that they weren't so interested in engaging with us at that point because we were with all the equipment on and all that. And we looked like giants heading into the stands. So it was a little bit of a macho rush for me. But I get into the stands and I see Peter, who I sat beside in the locker room. He's about 12 rows up and he's got the guy backwards over a chair. And I just went up there because I didn't know what else I was supposed to do. I was just trying to help out my teammates. And I got up there and the guy was sort of flailing away a little bit, probably not as much as I, I made it out to be. And I just grabbed his leg and I was, I don't know what, I wasn't really thinking. I, I just, he sort of lashed out a little bit. I grabbed his leg, shoe came off and I did a little double pump. And then I hit him on the thigh. I didn't hit him on the head. I didn't, you know, damage the guy. And then, and then I, the worst thing I did was I then took the shoe and threw it on the ice. I had to go home with one shoe on and one shoe off little, little, little dumpling, my son, John. Um, So, and it was a cheap penny loafer too, I might add. Uh, So I did really very little damage to him, but because we were 12 rows up, uh, the camera had panned into where Peter and I were easily could see that it was a melee below and, but it panned right in on Peter and I. So for the next three days, I was uh, a villain extraordinaire. Man goes crazy in the stands, hitting, a, hitting somebody with a shoe. I mean, it was uh, it was the top of the news throughout the whole weekend. Yeah, you weren't a villain in my mind, believe me. You made it <laughs> So, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was wild. I, I still. I think about it and I chuckle a little bit, but you know, the aftermath of that was pretty serious. They sued us for $7 million. Uh, the, the guys that started the fight in the stands, it was a father and his two sons. I think all three of them are now deceased, but um, that suit got thrown out. But the worst part of it was um, we were suspended Terry for seven games, me for six and Peter for six. And uh, we actually appealed it to the full board of governors and our lawyer made an excellent case. And 
there was a lot of discussion and a lot of sympathy for what had happened uh, in terms of the Board of Governors. But if you think about it, if they had overturned John Ziegler's ruling, probably would have been the kiss of death for him. So they they upheld the ruling. And I, I'll never forget him. He, skipping out of the room like a little schoolgirl. Sorry if I can say that. I can say whatever the hell I want. I'm already canceled. <laughs> right. You've managed to offend just about everybody already. <laughs> so um, six games it was, and it was a long six games, and it was tough, but the end result was every December 23rd, it comes on like clockwork. It's a, uh, it's a Christmas tradition in Boston, and I'm happy to be a part of it, Bob and Mike. Yeah, well, uh, I was happy. It's like a wonderful life. You know, it's coming on sometimes. Familiar <laughs> <laughs> with the shoe is coming on after a wonderful life. <laughs> well, it was, it was, uh, you know, when we left the building that night, there was a huge crowd outside and they were actually surrounding the bus and rocking the bus and, you know, making attempts to, half-hearted attempts maybe to get at us, but. That was probably the scariest part of the whole event for me was, you know, you got a thousand fans hanging around the bus, rocking it and hurling all sorts of epithets at you. But uh, we made it out safely and had a good Christmas. But then the shoe fell literally and figuratively. <laughs> you know, we had uh, Nate Greenberg on about a month ago and, <clears throat> and he was picking up the story from when you left Madison Square Garden. <clears throat> and he said, you know, Nate had arranged for um, a police escort to uh, either the tunnel or, or a bridge. And the, the, the police took you right right there and they stopped at, at, at the entrance to the tunnel. And um, either Harry or Nate, you know, went up to the, you know, put the, open the door and waved to the guys, hey, thanks a lot. <laughs> and the cop turned around. New <laughs> 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 York. Yep, New York, New York. You know, those were some, you had some pretty tough guys on the team that you played with. Winsink and uh, Jonathan, uh, yourself. Uh, O'Reilly. O'Reilly. I mean, let's. Schmocks. It was a long list. Yeah, yes, they, you guys had some pretty tough, pretty tough guys back when that, the game was the game. We, um, you know, it's the 100th anniversary, right? So they're, they're honoring. Uh, different eras of, of Bruins teams and we're being honored on uh, December 16th, I think for the lunch pail era, yeah. which is, uh, you know, it's a sad thing. We don't, we can't bring rings to the party. We came too close to, to doing that, but it was not to be, but I'm looking forward to seeing some of those guys. Unfortunately, some of them will not be with us. Peter McNabb in particular, who just recently passed away, uh, too good a guy, too young to go, but he fought a good fight against cancer, and in the end, he succumbed. But um, he'll be sorely missed. But I'm looking forward to seeing some of these other guys. Like once, like I, I can tell you, uh, John was street tough. Was uh, he the toughest guy that you ever played with? I, I don't, I, I have no idea how to measure that, but I can give you an example. What kind of ruthless approach he had. <laughs> He was in the minor leagues and he was playing in Providence, he told me, and he got into a fight with somebody. I don't know the name. And he said, I got on top of him and I had him down on the ice and I had my finger in his eye and right behind his eye and I could feel cords and I wondered, should I pull it out or not? And, and, he, and, and he said, 
I, I finally I took it out, but I was close. He said I was close to pulling out his eyeball. <laughs> That's tough. Yeah, well, he was, you know, lest people forget, he challenged the whole Minnesota North Star bench. And you know what? I was the idiot standing beside him like five feet away thinking, what the hell am I doing here? It was, I went over and stood beside him. It was, it was, what? It was a great scene, though, wasn't it? The two hands out on the side. Come on, come on. And, uh, no, he was, uh, he, he was a really sweetheart of a guy, too. You know, he was, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I should tell. I'll tell the story. What the oh, come on, why not? Yeah. Um, so we're going to the gardens. We're going to a concert at the garden, you know, with Harry and a few other people got a box someplace. We were down on the floor and Bette Midler was one of the performers. And I was with John and his wife and Harry and his wife. And Bette Midler, we were introduced to Bette Midler and uh, she looks at John and she says, I, I remember you, Kansas City, right? <laughs> and, and Harry says... Let me introduce you to John's wife, Fronda. <laughs> Holy smoke. So anyway, a funny moment for sure. But, you know, you guys, uh, 77 finals, 78 finals, and 79, you know, one extra skater away from maybe going to the Stanley Cup finals or winning the whole damn thing. You could have guys could have had three, three rings in a row. Yeah, well – when you take a look at the roster the Canadians produced for those teams, yeah. I think there were nine, nine Hall of Famers on the team. Uh, you know, Dryden and Robinson, Savard and, you know, Lapointe, and you just keep on going, Lafleur, Lemaire, Steve Shutt. It was, it was just a – it was deep as deep could be. But – we inched forward in 77, lost in four, then we lost in six, and we had them. You know, I don't know if you remember, we were up three to one going into the third period. They wound up, surprise, surprise, on the power play a couple of times and tied it up. And then Nifty scored a sort of weird wraparound goal against Dryden with just about four minutes to go in the game. And, you know, I'll spring forward to about 20 years later, uh, I think it was Doug, Doug Reisbrow was on that Canadian team. Told me they thought they were dead. They thought it was all over. I thought it was they were they were done. And then whatever happened on the bench, regardless of who was responsible, it was 14 seconds of too many men on the ice. You could see John D'Amico, the linesman, counting, trying to give us a break. I, I was actually leaning over the boards with my stick, trying to hook somebody back into. I just couldn't get close enough to anybody to hook them back in. But the penalty was our fault, deserved, and the consequences were incredibly cruel. Um, it, it was a drop pass from Lemaire to, to Lafleur, who didn't even hesitate. It just a wicked slap shot and beat Gil, Gilbert, who, speaking of deceased, just passed away. And it was brilliant that night, but I could hear the sound dinging off the inside of the goalpost, and it was just like a knife in the heart. And we had some chances in overtime. We couldn't put it away. And then, you know, the guy that scored the goal was Yvonne Lambert, passed from Mario Tremblay. 
uh, I had hit him on the first period as hard as I've ever hit anybody. <laughs> in today's world, he would have been in concussion protocol for a week. I mean, I hit and the boards in Montreal were like cement, and I hit him. I caught Do Gary Doak was on the ice with me, and I kind of used him as a screen as Lambert went wide on Doak, and I stepped up and moved around Gary and, and hit him. Never saw me coming and crushed him against the end wall. He was down for a long time. The bastard got up and scored the game winner about a couple hours later. It was, but anyway, that, I, that, there were a lot of tears on that plane ride home with some tough guys. Uh, it's as, it's hard to describe. It's the ultimate in my career and both good and bad. I mean, we, we should have been there. We were right there. And there's no question who was going to beat the Rangers. They lost the first game because they were so, you know, they were so exhausted and sort of not ready to play. They had to play two days later or a day and a half later. And I think any, anybody that saw the teams knew that we were ready to win a championship and we, we blew it. You know, Harry has a great line. There are three certainties in life, death, taxes, and the first penalty at the forum will yeah. always be in favor of the Canadians. Oh, it was a weird time for our team because Harry and Grapes were at each other's throat. I mean, they were they were really – you could see that it was frayed. The relationship was frayed. It was too bad because they had been really close. I think they patched it up a little bit since then. But, you know, I remember uh, – walking through the airport, going to the bus in, in, in Montreal, and Harry came up to me to discuss penalty killing and something, some aspect of it. I don't even remember because I got on the bus and Grape said, what are you doing talking to him? <laughs> you know, he said, general manager, for Christ's sake. He was talking about penalty killing. But but uh, it was Grapes' last game as coach, and uh, it was – Never more fun than playing for Don Cherry. It was uh, simple rules. You know, he was the only – now they got 16 different assistant coaches, right? But with Grapes, it was just him behind the bench. And he handled every practice, handled every game. And uh, there was never more fun than it was to be playing for Don Cherry, although – I can tell you, you know, I got, I played one game in 75, I guess, but not much. I didn't get much ice time. They sent me back down. And I must admit, I thought I was going to make it in my first year out of Colgate. And they kept Doug Halloward because he was a number one pick, not based on performance, but based on potential. And I went to the minor leagues for a while and pouted. and was not a mature reaction on my part, but I was, I thought I'd been slighted, and I still think I had, had been slighted. But anyway, I got called up. We were in New Haven on, a, I think it was a Wednesday night, and uh, finished the game, and my coach, Dick Matusi from Rochester, called me over and said, you know, you're being called up to play in Buffalo tomorrow. Now, if you check a map, the distance between New Haven and Buffalo is a long way. So we left at, what, 11, 11.30, whatever time it was, we roll in the wee hours of the morning. I caught a, caught a couple hours of sleep and um, then made my way to Buffalo. And so Buffalo had a very good team at that point. They had the French connection line and they had some good players. And I, uh, you know, I thought I was doing okay. And 
Grapes came down to the end of the bench near the end of the first period. And he said, Mike, what the fuck happened to you? I, said, I looked at him and I said, what do you mean, Don? He said, you college commie pinko faggot. Hit somebody. <laughs> so, all right. So the second period comes and now we're down in a hole. And it was uh, end of the second period. Same thing. What's the matter with you? Go hit somebody, you college commie pinko fag. You know? <laughs> and so they sent me down after the game was over. And but they still needed somebody. I think they clinched the division and they called me back really literally the next afternoon. And I drove up to Toronto and I was by myself. All the other guys had gone out to the track, which they are want. They were wanted with Cheevers leading the pack, of course. <laughs> and I went next door to, uh, it was, I didn't know where I was. I'd never been to Toronto. And I went to a place called the stable bar. It was a hundred yards away from, from where we were staying. And I walked in and they were all there. Like they were, everybody was there. Get over here, kid. Get over here, kid. Throwing beers at me. And, you know, it's the night before a game, right? And I'm not exactly on, I'm on thin ice as it is. So somehow, you know, it wasn't that late. It was like 10 o'clock, 1030. Cash got excited and broke a chair or hit somebody or did something <laughs> stupid. And, and uh, the, I went gone to the, to the bathroom and the next thing I know, I come back, and there's only like two or three of us left. I think it was Jill Gilbert and, and uh, Dick Redmond. And who comes in the bar is Don Cherry. Um, because the manager knew that we were staying next door, and he called and asked for Don. said, the guys are being a pain in the ass. you got to come home, come back and get him. So he walks in, and he said, starts shaking his head looking at me. And I just remember what he just told me in Buffalo to the night before. And he, he said, he walks me back to the hotel the whole time. Fucking rookie, hanging on by a thread. Now you're the only reason. I'm the only. I'm the only reason that you're here, and you're you, you embarrassing me. This is ridiculous. And so, anyway, we have a big team meeting the next day. He walks around. He's yelling at everybody, and then he comes to me. He's standing, hovers over me. He's a big guy. And how many beers did you have? And I said. I, I I didn't know what to say. And I said, I think I had maybe two. <laughs> he just started laughing. He just started laughing. But we go to, we play the game. And uh, I get into a fight with Pat Boutet, who started a little smaller guy, but a tough, tough little customer. But I cut him open for a half dozen or so. And uh, I, I get back to the bench after serving my time. And he's standing there at the, opening of the bench the gate with his hands on his hips and he looks at me and he says what did you do that for and I'm like what the hell what did you do that for he said you just made me come in my nice new brown suit <laughs> <laughs> oh you can't top that can you just... no but you know what you you were in a different era my yeah. god I mean uh, you you really, you, you guys were a different era, and you represented that era. I mean, NBC couldn't handle you. No, well, they did for a while, and you know that was that's a, a different kettle of fish. But um, it was a really tight group. We really had a lot of fun. You know, we went everywhere together, and you know, later that same year, uh, we were playing Los Angeles. You know, and I was up and down like a yo-yo, but they called me up 
and it was uh, game three, game four when uh, Dallas Smith got hurt in game three. I was just riding the you know riding the plane and getting the free meals and stuff. But but we got dinged up and uh, it was clear that they were going to have to play me. And Grapes told me I was going to play the next night. So where do we go after practice? Of course, we go back to the track. Everybody's at the track. And one of my highlights of that is that I looked up in the stands and there was Farrah Fawcett. Now, this is like 1975, and she was smoking at that point, right? Um, I knew I was in a different world when it came to that. Uh, and and so the next night we play, and they got a two-man advantage. Five on three, and he calls me to go out there. Like and they, they got the triple crown line. They got Dion and Charlie Simmer and, and Dave Taylor. Uh, and I... You know, it's five on three, so you got to spread out, right? And it was a wing-to-wing pass to Marcel Dion, who could really snipe the puck. And I dove to my left, and I – Cheevers was way out of position. He had to be – it was a lateral pass, and there was no chance he was going to get there. And I caught it with my glove, hit my glove and knocked it away. Otherwise, you know, uh, it's a different story. And we won that game and came back to win it in seven. Um, but – but I was, you know, and I, my role diminished after Dallas came back. But it was, it was a pretty cool moment to get that kind of responsibility from from the coach, and uh, we went on from there. It was it was never looked back. When you went into coaching, and I, it's not because there's so much more I want to talk about as a player. But was Cherry the one that you really uh, tried to emulate? As a coach, I don't think anybody could emulate Don Cherry. I mean, he's a one of a kind individual. But um, my two favorite coaches were Graves and, and Harry. Harry only for short stints after he fired somebody. But um, they both had a way of making you feel important. You know, Graves would give you roles like I just talked about in Los Angeles. He would. He'd have fun with you. I mean, this is a guy that made me drive into the rink with him uh, for pregame skates. So if we were playing on a Thursday night in the morning, we'd drive in. And, like, I had no choice. I, I lived down the street from him in North Andover. and said, you're, dry, you're riding in with me today. So on the ride in, he would practice his pregame speech. <laughs> me. So like three or four times over, how's that going? How's that like? I'm listening to him. Like, I can't believe this is happening here. But by the time, you know, we 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 finish our pregame skate and then we drive back. And every time we'd stop at the Kowloon. And Graves on game day, he would have he'd make an order for himself or for Rose and the kids. And uh he'd have two Budweisers while we were waiting for <laughs> <laughs> for the order to come through. And he always ordered for us on the ride home, uh, an order of spare ribs. So we're just sitting in the car, <laughs> eating spare ribs and chucking them out the window. But after grapes had two beers and he went home and had his nap. And then uh, I went in and listened to his pregame speech for about the fifth time, <laughs> but it was, uh, he made it, he just made it so much fun. It was just, uh, but, but, but he had a personal touch about him and, uh, let me tell you one other story. I think you may, I don't know if you've heard this one before, but you go into the rink and you're on route one, right? And it's a two, two lanes going each way with that little narrow uh, metal divider in the middle. 
And so we're going into the rink one day, and Grapes says, Mike, look at that weed over there. And I looked at the weed, and he said, that's a tough weed to be growing in that area, right? So <laughs> we go every time we go into the rink, he's like, Mike, that, that weed is a brewing. That's a brewing weed right there. And this is – so now it turns – the calendar turns to April, and we've seen the weed plenty of times. It's like a best friend. Uh, and But – it's street cleaning time, right? And the street cleaners are out on the highway. And he said, Mike, we got to save the weed. <laughs> and he said, you got to go over and get that weed. So he stops the car on this busy thoroughfare. Like there's hardly a breakdown lane. And I got to wait for a chance to dodge traffic to go over the little stupid metal barrier between the two roads. And, and I pry the weed out and huh. we rush to the gas station he he gets a newspaper he wets the newspaper and saves the roots then he goes home and plants it in his garden <laughs> two weeks later i said hey don how's the weed doing he said well rose was in the garden and she was doing some weeding and she threw it out <laughs> <laughs> but uh it was it was a it was something to be with him i mean i i we go on forever with him. We couldn't win in Montreal. Remember, we had all sorts of trouble winning in Montreal. So he decides that we need to change it up the night before the game. So we get into Montreal and we get to the, the hotel. And he said, okay, defense, you're coming with me. So we walk around the hotel to some little dive bar. And we just keep going. We just keep going. It's now like 10 o'clock and nobody's had anything to eat and and, uh, you know, we're not feeling too good the next day. And they squish us like a bug. And he, he calls the defense aside for a meeting. And he said, you know what, guys? At least we tried. <laughs> you know, and, and one, I'll give you one last Don story. Well, we were in Atlanta, won a game. They were pretty hapless at the time. And we went out for a few beers and some to eat at a, a place nearby the hotel. And um, it's like one o'clock in the morning and the, and the manager comes out and turns off, tries to turn off the, the jukebox or whatever music that was playing. And that would be Grapes' favorite song. And Grapes says, I, I just let me listen to the song and I will get out of here. It's not a big deal. Just one, just one song. And, and he said, you got to leave right now. And he said, I, I got my bouncer here, and he knows karate. And Grape says, we're not going anywhere till I hear the rest of that song. So this <laughs> bouncer comes out, you know, and he's ready, and, and Al Secorts walks over to him, and they have a little confrontation, and then, boom, Al with a tough left, and down he goes. <laughs> I guess we heard the rest of the song, got out of there in a hurry. Unbelievable. <clears throat> I remember one specific moment. It had to be in Pittsburgh, and I you chased is a Dennis Morell. It might have been the he, I'm not sure it was Morell, but I know his name was Dennis because all I remember is yeah. just you yelling at him. Just another effing day at the office, Dennis. Just yeah. Another effing day at the office, and there's this Boston College priest standing right yeah, there. I'm just gonna say, I didn't know it. I had just come up. I was assistant general manager at the time. I wasn't coaching, and but I just I had had back surgery about four days before, 
this is my excuse anyway. That's right. It was a little, you know, I had a disc problem and they took care of it and I managed to get back up and go there, but we were, we were getting screwed. And, uh, and he was one of the worst refs in the history of refs. Morel, right? Yeah. Dennis Morel, Denny Morel. So he liked to call himself, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I never knew the priest was there until I saw the video later. Which was, it was, was, that cost me 10 grand. We got more laughs out of that than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Just another effing day at the office, Danny. Do you think if Grapes didn't get fired after, uh, after that 79 season, you guys would have made a run or won a cup if he stayed on with that team? It's hard to say, but I mean, we made three pretty good runs. One, the yeah. closest one, of course, in '79. But I think, um, I think there was a good chance that we could have. You know, I think Montreal ran out of string at that point. The Islanders were taking over, which is another story. I mean, we went from one dynasty to the next, playing against them in, in 1980. Uh, another team loaded with Hall of Famers. And by the way, I mean, that was 1980 was their first year, right, as part of the run. So yeah. 79, 78, 79, 77, 78, 79, we lose to the champions. And now in 1980, we're playing the, the Islanders. And, you know, later I went to the Islanders to get to be somewhat friendly with Bob Nystrom. And he tells the story that um, they went to the fours. He took Clark Gillies out to the fours the night before uh, the first game. And he said, you know, we're never going to win this series unless we match up to them physically. And he said, you know, I'll take care of Wensink and you take care of O'Reilly. And if we get through that, we'll beat these guys. And we lost. Cheesy didn't have a good series. He was, he was not very good in that series. But we, we lost five games, I think it was, all close games, but never more brutal in terms of physicality. Uh, it, Terry and Gillies had, I think, three fights, one of which Terry was being restrained. His arms were being restrained by the officials, and Gillies just teed him up because he was free. I mean, and Gillies is a big man, a tough man. Um, but, you know, a different time, different timing. You know, we might have won more than one, but, you know, back-to-back -back dynasties were yeah. a little touch more able to get the job done than we were. Then you had Edmonton when you were coaching at the end of the eighties and into yeah. the 90s. Yeah, they were they were um you know, we were we went up in that series. Uh, no, we weren't up in that series. We were in the we were in triple overtime in yeah. the first game of the series, and Glenn Wesley had an open net. I remember that. Oh my god. I mean he could have turned he went went on his backhand, he could have he had the time to go to his forehand, and he he didn't. And then of course, Peter Klima, who'd been sitting on the bench for three and a half hours, comes in and scores the game winner against us. And they were the better team. You remember their, their fourth line was Adam Graves, Martin Jelena, and Joe Murphy, all guys longtime professional. That was their fourth line. Yeah. Um, but we we were outmatched in that one. I mean, it was a great – we had a great season, but um, it, it really turned in game two – when we had Poulin versus Messier and uh, Poulin, good checker, hard worker, 
got under Messier's skin, and Messier pushed him down and then cross-checked him viciously to the ice, and he blew out his knee. And then we just didn't have the we just didn't have enough depth to to stay with him. But it was, you know, disappointing not to get more out of that one too. But you know, there are a lot of guys in this game that were great players, like John Rattel or Brad Park, that didn't bring home rings, but um, still had great careers. And, and we had a lot of fun doing it. But I'm getting depressed speaking about this now. <laughs> Well, how do you, I mean, I don't – this year's team had a very similar fate, as you know. I mean – Well, they didn't even make a whimper of a run. I don't know what happened there. I was uh, going to ask, okay, what was your analysis? Since well, I, I, I don't think – I don't think the coach was on his A game. I think every everything was – you know, I call him Mr. Rogers. Everything was, you know, wonderful day in the neighborhood kind of thing. And uh, I, I think when things got rough – uh, he didn't know how to put the, the the hammer down. And I think he made some poor choices in goal. I don't know. I don't know if the goalie was hurt or, or what happened to him. I mean, it was – but he was not 100%. He wasn't anywhere like he was in the regular season. Uh, they were late changing goaltenders to Swayman. I mean, I, what a tough spot to put the kid in game seven after sitting there for two weeks. And uh, – you know, and Bertie, I don't know the real story of what happened, why he was playing in Montreal last game, probably thought it was going to be, you know, his last game and wanted to, to play in front of his family and friends one more time. Did he get hurt in that game? Was he hurt going into that game? I don't know. He shouldn't have been in that game. There's no way he should have been in that game. And he wound up either aggravating an injury or, causing an injury and that was a that was a problem and uh so it was a combination of things but I felt bad most of all for for the front office to be honest with you I mean they went all in they made some uh, Sweeney made some great moves to pick up people that would help him you know he got some toughness and Hathaway uh Orlov was I thought Terrific as a pickup. I mean, he could argue, he's certainly a number two defenseman on any team at that point. I knew he was pretty good, but I didn't know he was as good as he proved to be. Um, and and then who else? Bertuzzi. I mean, who thought Bertuzzi was, I mean, all of a sudden they, they looked like they were completely loaded and ready to go to work. And they just, mentally weren't ready to play. And I point my finger at the coach. I mean, they couldn't get the job done. They had a good opportunity to get the job done. I mean, how many, three opportunities to finish it off. And, uh, you know, when you have that kind of a lead, you got to be able to stomp on it. And I think you can forgive them for missing on the first chance, thinking ahead of themselves, but then you have to like, okay, we got to get this done. Let's get serious. Let's get, you know, this is what we have to do. Um, I don't think they had that. I don't think the coach had that in his arsenal. And it might have backfired anyway, because if you've been one way all year long, and all of a sudden you put on your black hat instead of your white hat, you might turn people off. I, I don't know what went on in the room, but clearly there was a, a failure to meet the challenge. And 
And uh, the result was not only did they lose Bertuzzi and Orlov and Hathaway, and then they lose their top two centers and Krejci and Bergeron, massive hole, a massive hole. They still have, they still have good goaltending. They still have a good defense, but the top two center positions being vacated like that does not bode well. I mean, I still think there'll be a playoff team, but uh, unless they have a surprise or make a deal for a top flight centerman, at least one, um, they're going to have to rebuild that position and it's not easy to do. Would you come back and coach? Not, I'm not saying here or, or would you consider coming back to coach? I think it's the ship has sailed. You know, I'm 71 now. I don't think anybody wants to listen to the old guy. I mean, it, it's a, it's a um, 24 hour a day proposition, really. You know, you you have to you have to be ready to sink your teeth into every possible problem, and there's, and there's always one. Yeah, you, you know, you got to find that fourth line guy that's going to stay with it. That's not going to be ticked off. You got to make sure if the power play is not working, you make an adjustment. You got to be watching video. You know, it's a it's a job for a younger guy than me. And you know, sometimes I fantasize about that, but I don't. It's not it's not in the cards. What about the broadcast booth, Mike? Would you? Well, you know, if you can find me somebody who's willing to to do it, I I. I Still I'm baffled by that. I as uh, as are we, and I, I'll I'm say I've I've read the quote over and over and over again a thousand times, probably <clears throat> a thousand times less than you've read it. What in that quote about it's a perfect hockey environment? If you love hockey, be with your friends, be with your teammates, and no distractions like like women. I mean that that's an honest statement. That's all. That, that's nothing derogatory. There's nothing offensive to women. Here's the greatest quote. I love to quote to you as you explained you explained what what was going on or, or what what these they were trying to create or correct. Uh, it was priceless, but it, what you well, said was nothing. No, I I, I um, st- you said Mike honest and I, and it is. It's part of I guess there's so many now genders but for the most part in the time that i was playing or the time that i was brought on the time that i live men are distracted by women and women try to distract them at times it's not i wasn't meant to be offensive to them doesn't mean that they were you know they're not good sports writers or they're not good this or good that it's just was just it, it when you're 20 something and you're in great shape and you're we are renowned at a celebrity status. You're loaded with dough. Certain things follow. And trust me, they followed uh, on the road trips and on and at home. It doesn't matter where. I mean, women were, you know, interested in guys like, you know, Boston Bruin hockey players. And, and when they're not around, it, it is less. I mean, it, and actually, it could have referred to wives and children as well. I mean... That's why people, like teams, like to put their players in hotel rooms for home games because they want them to get a good sleep. They don't want to have any distractions. They don't want to, you know, worried about, you know, the honey-do list. And, and that's why that took place. So it bothered me more than anything after that. 
comment was, I mean, I got a call, said, you know, we're going to take you off the broadcast tonight and then we'll, you know, we're going to reevaluate. And they, then they asked me to apologize. I don't know if you saw the article I did with Dan Shaughnessy sort of explaining some of this, but um, I, so I, I said, say whatever you want. You know, I've had to apologize before for different things that I said on the air, you know, mostly, you know, about Ovechkin, Ted Leonsis was crying because I was, you know, I was all over him and I was rightly all over him because he was, he was playing like one way guy until he got finally figured it out when Barry Trotz came around. So I had to apologize. And so, okay, apologize. I didn't even, I didn't write it. I didn't read it. I didn't say anything. And so the apology came out from NBC and then the next day, the NHL came out with a statement. Now, they have this vice president of inclusivity and whatever other terminology that you have, you know, the touchy-feely that has to make sure everybody does the right thing by diversity and inclusivity kind of stuff. And she made a statement, the league made a statement, condemning it as non-inclusive and whatever the hell else they said. And that was sort of the kiss of death. And then I got a call from from my boss at NBC and said, we're going to take you off uh, for the rest of the year. We had already been talking about me going to Edmonton because that's where the finals were going to be played in the bubble. But um, so I said, my first question, of course, was what about the money? And uh, they said, no, that's fine. Uh, I don't know who that is, but. Um, let's not answer it yeah well it's my wife's computer that's why <laughs> anyway <laughs> it was i so 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 then he called me back and said you know we're going to do an internal examination of you know your behavior they did this bullshit witch hunt and uh and then they said well we're gonna we're gonna take you off the air and i said then i said again because i had a year left on my contract and they said no we'll, we'll pay you that year I almost wish they hadn't because I think I would have had a pretty good lawsuit if I hadn't. But you know here's the deal, Mike. I, it's not the fact that we don't don't know you or like you or all the above. You did a hell of a good job. I mean, you did a you did a terrific job at that, and you were thanks straightforward, outspoken, yeah. and honest. And that's all yeah. I can say. You well, may have, yeah, you might have crossed the line and offended just about everybody you talked about. Uh, for all kinds of different reasons. But, you know, that was part of what Mike Milbury was all about. That's what he's supposed to. He's supposed to have an, you have an edge, all right? No, Nobody else has an edge. And people like to – people. Well, why do you think Howard Cosell was so popular? Because he had an edge to him. And right. you had an edge to you. Well, I mean, you're getting it a little bit now. I don't know how long it's going to last, but Papelbon on the Red Sox broadcast has brought some heat to the table. And, and uh, you know, he's not the uh, – wimp that some of those other guys have proven to be. And <laughs> I, I, I just, my role as I felt it as a broadcaster was to bring my experience uh, with me to the game and to comment on honestly on things that I saw that were developing. And, and that was a, it was a take no prisoners approach. I didn't want to be, I didn't intend to offend people but I intended to explain from my perspective the action on the ice and who was responsible for certain things at certain times, which everybody who watches the game does the same thing in some ways. When you get behind a microphone, 
a lot of people, well, you've seen the ESPN and uh, TNT broadcasts. I mean, you think Wayne Gretzky's going to tell it like it is? He's not. He's going to, he doesn't want to offend anybody. And, and most of them are that, I guess they've got a few guys there that are occasionally come to the table with something that's interesting. Most of the time it's PK Subban and his wild outfits and, you know, not really focused on the game. They're focused more on personality and making it a, I don't know, fluff and stuff. So anyway, um, I did try to reach out to TNT and ESPN and basically the door was slammed shut. Um, I have no idea who or what is responsible for that. Or if I, I can't believe the things that I said, some of the things that other people have said in the meantime have been 10 times worse than that, but it, it was a, it was a game changer. And uh, you know, I thought I had a few more years left in the tank to do some more broadcasting. It's, a, you know, it's not like digging a ditch. You have to come to work ready, but, you know, I thought I could get another four or five years out of the broadcasting thing before, I, you know, they kicked me to the curb, but a little earlier than I anticipated and a little more surprisingly than I thought. But I, yeah, It's uh, our loss, to, to, uh, you know, your disappointment, our loss. Well, thanks. I just uh, – but I, I did, Mike, want to get back into it. I, you know, I even tried, I tried Nesson a couple of years ago and they had said, said they had already had a full boat of broadcasters. So I, um, you know, I let that pass. I've done a little work with EEI and uh, WMEX here on, you know, on the South Shore um, with a couple radio shows on a weekly basis and that's been kind of fun when the season gets started. I hope to be able to do that again, but um, the full-time gig seems to have evaded me. You know, you, I think you answered my question, because I was going to say, all right, so NBC let you go, you know, um, what about TNT and ESPN? So it all, that tells me it's coming from the top. It's coming from yeah, the right? That's my, that's my interpretation. And I, I waited, of course, I'm not s- stupid, I waited until my final paycheck came uh, and then I finally called Bettman. And um, this is like a hundred percent true, even though you'll deny it. And there was a comment about it in the Shaughnessy article I did. Um, I said, did you, did you really think what I said was so offensive? And Gary said, Mike, I don't even remember what the fuck you said. That was an exact quote. Like it, he didn't remember what he said, but it, you know, it, it, it only his office, if not him, um, just poured a whole bunch of cold water on my career, uh, and he didn't remember what I'd said. New day, new age. The woke movement uh, was in full force, and uh, everybody was jumping on the inclusivity bandwagon and the diversity bandwagon. The timing wasn't good. Um, but I mean, I don't think that sin is worthy of a permanent place in hell. A lot of that stuff was just locker room banter. It's just like stuff you would have been, I mean, I've laughed at some of the things that you said, some of the quotes, the Sedin brother, I thought that was very funny. 
I thought that was hilarious. I thought it was. I thought it was funny too. I guess I can see that. Maybe no, that I can happened. see that. You know, I can see. Yeah, I can see where. But on the other hand, I thought that was hilarious. And uh, people are going to say, "Well, what are you talking about now?" And there was this Thelma and Louise reference. Yeah, I said it. Well, the Bruins want to win this game. They have to stay on Thelma and Louise. Oh, I mean, Henrik <laughs> and Daniel. And uh, and you know what? They were nuts Tell about that's that. That's not funny. They were nuts about that in Canada. NBC hired a bodyguard to, to cover me. Tell me that's not funny. Out of control. And the same, same thing happened in Nashville when, you know, they were in the finals against Pittsburgh. And P.K. Subban was paired up against Crosby whenever they could do it. And P.K., being the prick that he is on the ice, was really giving it to Crosby. So he hit Crosby, and somehow Crosby wound up on top, and he he punched him in the head, and he got away with it. And, and they showed the replay, and I said, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, PK got exactly what he deserved right there. And you would have thought I got a call the next day at the hotel, we because the fans were wild, the Nashville fans were wild that I would insult PK or think that Crosby should get away with a, a punch to his head. Got a call and said, Mike, we know what hotel you're staying at. We know when you go to the rink and we're going to get you. And I, so I hung up and I'm like, and, and then about a half an hour later, same call. You know, we know where you stay in. We know how you get to the rink. So I had to call NBC and they again hired a, a bodyguard to protect me. Uh, fortunately, it was the last game of the series, Nashville lost. And I, but I had to move hotels. I had to move to another hotel close to the airport um, to get out of sight. They ever hire broadcast or bodyguards for you guys? <laughs> um, I made comments about a meter maid one night. I, this guy, this guy is a compassion of a meter maid, and I got a call from the husbands of about five meter maids. And so they were waiting for me in the parking lot at Channel Five. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm looking for a lovely read of meter maid, you know, waiting waiting for me at twelve fifteen as I'm coming out of the. Out of the <laughs> <laughs> I, they didn't get one for me in Lobel because they were hoping somebody would take us out and then they'd, they'd be done with us. <laughs> we're not to worry about us anymore. Get that right. <laughs> All right, what happened at Boston College? That was the that was the. Pitt uh, uh, well, was the. I would just uh, tell you that my youngest two sons went to BC. They're both BC graduates. One's uh, works for Suffolk Construction now, and one works for one doesn't work. He's going to Duke School of Business, and uh, so actually, when they were applying, you know, I had some people talking to other people at BC, and would it be a problem because of my past? And they said, you know what, most of the people here at BC completely understood what happened. What happened was I got a call from. Chet Gladchuk. We had had a flirtation a year or two earlier when Lenny had Lenny Siglaski had retired, and I was in assistant GM position. And you know, we flirted a little bit, but then things went south when Cedarchuk took over. And so he called me, and I thought, no, I had I missed coaching at that point. I was, you know, I had that I. I couple of years and I saw the team was not going in the right 
direction or I didn't think it was. And I thought, well, now's a good time. I had originally planned to just be in management, wanted to be a manager. And at that time, I, Harry had sent me to Buffalo to meet with Jerry. And, uh, and I, you know, one-on-one with Jerry is interesting. Um, and I said to him, you know, we have, we have to spend, uh, more money on this roster. And he said, we'll spend more money when we, we have a new building. And I said, but still, we need to spend a little higher percentage of our profits on the, on the product. And he said, I like the percentages just the way they are. So uh, that was sort of telltale for me. I mean, Harry was great at making money for that, that team and, com- and having a competitive team. But uh, that, I, that didn't sit particularly well with me. And, you know, now he lets people spend to the cap because there is a cap at that time, you know, Detroit was spending money willy nilly. And so were the Rangers. You could be, you'd be ridiculous payrolls and none of them paid off. But anyway, um, I got the call from him and we met and I decided, okay, I can coach. This is a long term. This is, you know, I'm, what am I now, early 40s or something like that? And, you know, Lenny had been there through thick and thin for a thousand years. And um, great building, great campus. You know, and uh, But I, I was making $325,000, I think, at the time as assistant general manager. I negotiated with Gladchuck to get to $150,000 a year which was the highest paid coach in hockey, I think, at that time. In fact, Jack Parker, after I left, wanted to thank me for making sure the salary structure was changed. Um, But I got there, and I was anticipating uh, being able to recruit in my first season like eight players with scholarships. Um, And in the first week's, kids and mothers and fathers came into my office and said with letters from Steve Cedarchuk saying, this is a, the commitment this organization has made. I mean, I'm talking about not just eight, I'm talking about 12, 15 kids, like with parents who like one after the other and parents in tears, like it was, it was, and I went to him and he said, I'll handle it. Let me handle it. Gladcheck wouldn't let me get near it. And uh, it just kept going. I finally went to a lawyer. I said, you know, so it's the deal here. And he, I don't know if I got the right advice, but he said, you, you know, you could have some liability here too, if these scholarships aren't on it. And I said, okay, that's, that's it. You know, that's it for me. So I, I resigned. So I went from making 325,000 to making 150,000 to now being out of work. <laughs> and and it was based on principle. And Father Monin, who was president of the school at the time, asked me to come back in, wanted me to rethink my position, and, and, and they were going to straighten it out. And I said to him in that meeting, I said, Father, you, you know, you're in violation of so many NCAA regulations that it's hard to comprehend. And he said, I'll let my people tell me when we're in violation." Like, what am I? If you're asking me to come back to coach, aren't I, I? I'm the one that had to read the rules. I'm the one that saw these letters. And, you know, so that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And uh, 
Gene DiFilippo, I think it was, became the new uh, new AD. And I went out with Nate Greenberg and we went out to dinner with Gene and he said, it cost them millions of dollars and five years to clean up the mess. Uh, and in the meantime, Jerry York came in and took over, took the hits, but he was coming back home. He was in a better position. It was a clean slate. And uh, so he owes me for getting him into the Hall of Fame, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Absolutely. Brought him here from Bowling Green. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, he was a good coach at Bowling Green, put into a great spot here and had a great career. But, I mean, I thought that was going to be me. And it wasn't. But listen. Well, you know what? I don't think you were the only one that had issues with Chet Gladchuk. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I can't speak to everybody else's issues, just mine. But, you know, I wound up going to work for ESPN and I had, because I was familiar with the labor situation, I negotiated a contract. No, no matter what I would get paid, whether there was a lockout or a strike and people at ESPN didn't really take it seriously. And so what happens that fall is <laughs> there's a, there's a uh, work stoppage and it went on until January and I kept getting paid. We wound up doing one, Pretty good show, actually, on, on Russian hockey um, for ESPN, but, but pretty much just collected a paycheck until the beginning of the year. And then Don Maloney from New York got a hold of me, and uh, I wound up signing with the Islanders as a head coach. It was not a very – that was a rocky time at best, but um, Don was fired in December of that year. And um, – Darcy Regeer was his assistant, and they sort of put Darcy and I in a – I said, I, we didn't get along very well. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to be happy if I don't get this GM job. And uh, they gave it to me, and I became GM and coach, which was the, a huge mistake. And I was going to practice, coming out of my – off the ice and, and running in my sweatsuit down to the GM's office to do GM stuff. So – the end of that first half season when I was doing that, I went to ask some people about it and, and somebody hooked me up with Bill Parcells and you know, the guy that if you want me to cook, you got to let me buy the groceries. Right. Yep. So he said, you know, you can, you can do it. You could, you know, if you have enough people around you support staff, he said, you'll, you know, he said, you kind of remind me a little of myself, you know, kind of brash and, you know, take no prisoners kind of thing. So I did it, and it was I did both poorly, to be honest with you. I was just it was, and the team was dreadful. We can talk about ownership later in that situation, but it was it was a nightmare scenario. But anyway, so I'm driving about five years later. Now I'm just the GM, and I'm listening to Mike Francesa interview Parcells on his radio show in New York on the Fan. And, and he said to Parcells, you know, if you, Bill, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? He said, I never would have done two, both jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the advice, coach. <laughs> I was laughing in my car by myself, shaking my head like, what the hell? But anyway. You know, now in a way, do you remember right after you resigned from um, a BC, there was the Havlicek fishing tournament. And you get in the hot tub. All these guys were out the hot tub, out at the pool. And you wanted to fight me for something I said on the air. And you said, let's go right now, you and me, right here. 
<laughs> okay, own it up. What, what was it? I don't yeah. even know. I said, you, you said, what did you say about me on the air after I left? Uh, I left. Uh, um, the yeah, I probably said some asshole thing that you were likely to say about me. That's all. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I wasn't. I wasn't a. You're yeah, okay. going from one spot, at, you know, looking to be the GM of the Bruins, maybe to being a head coach at BC to being unemployed with four kids at home and bills to pay. So you made some wise ass comment, which I don't recall. I really? said, I, I'm I, by that. That mind. never would have happened if I'd have gone to Harvard. That's what you probably. <laughs> said. I said you were impulsive, but like. So yeah, that's right. That's the word you used. Impulsive. I was not impulsive. <laughs> I was not. I was wealth. Do you think I was doing that cavalierly? I mean, this was a huge life change, too, in a matter of months, going from the Bruins and great relationship with Harry. I, that, I think I stung him there when I left for a while. And, you know, we're fortunately past that. We chat periodically. He's, you know, he's always – he was he was great to me. He was He was always – a good guy to, to work for. And we never talked about Harry's coaching, by the way, just to get segue back to him. No, when he came, when he came to, uh, to the bench, first of all, the toughest practices I ever had were with Harry. I mean, you talk about skating, you know, he, after he left the Bruins, uh, he left the Bruins in 70 after they won the cup. Right. And he told me the story. He went in to negotiate. I guess Milt was the GM at the time, right? And they win the cup. And Harry goes in and he's looking for a $5,000 raise. And Milt is holding back. And and Weston Adams was the, the owner. So Harry went in to see Milt. And he, he's leaving the office. And he's a little disappointed. And uh, he sees Weston Adams. And Weston Adams looks at him and said, Harry, I hope you like it wherever you go. <laughs> <laughs> but he came back in 72 before before he came back in 72. Of course, he coached the Canadian national team in the Soviet series, which was one of the great series of all time, if not the greatest series of all time. Um, and, you know, down the, in a hole after four games, you know, and remember the, the game in Vancouver, game four, when the Russians beat them again, and there was that tearful Espo moment on the uh, after the game, we're trying, we're trying, right? And then they, they go to uh, to Russia, and, and there's, there's seconds, minutes left in the game, and it's tied, and they think the series is going to go, you know, to a, to a tie. And the Russians came over and explained to Alan Eagleson and, Everybody else that no, the Russians will win the series based on goal differential, and that, of course Henderson scores the goal that, that made Canada happy, and and it was it was a great series, and you know it's the series where Bobby Clark two-handed Harlamov, their best player, offensive player, with a with a hack that came from Minneapolis to Moscow it was just I mean it was just vicious and knocked him out of the series. Uh, but Harry coached that team, and but getting ready for that, um, he he said he knew how good they were. Most of the Canadians were not in shape; they didn't train hard, 
and he read books by Tarasov and, you know, how they trained and he watched there's some great video of Tarasov who's a fabulous guy and a great coach, bubbly, effervescent kind of a guy. And um, their training methods were way ahead of, of Canadian and American standards. And um, so he knew it was going to be a difficult run. And then fortunately for him, he was able to regain his footing in Boston as the general manager. And uh, when he, but when he coached, um, he not only did it, was he tough and made sure everybody was in shape. He, he told me that three things that you're responsible for are conditioning, discipline, and motivation. Now conditioning's pain in the ass, but it's easy enough to do, right? You're playing the right practice. <clears throat> discipline, it's also a pain in the ass, but you got to have it. Um, but the art form was his motivation, you know, making, finding ways to get people ready uh, to play every game in a course of an 82 game season. And that's why, I mean, he said to me once, you know, Mike, the season and the games are, it's not like bridge. You can't pass. And there was a great quote I thought from him. It's not like playing bridge. You can't pass on any given game. You got to show up and play the game. And he made sure that on a nightly basis, there was a reason to play the game. Um, when I, when I was coaching for Harry, um, we, my first season, we were in first place. We won a game in Hartford and we had a game the next night against Calgary. Calgary was a really good team. And, uh, this was after Calgary, we had four days off for the all-star break. So we win the game in Hartford. I get a couple hours of sleep and I go in to watch tape and I gave everybody the day off, the morning off, no, no morning skate, just come to the rink and be ready to play. And I'm watching tape prior to this Calgary game. And I get a call from, from Dale Hamilton, Harry's secretary said, Harry would like to see you. Um, I didn't even know if he knew that I was in the building, but I mean, it was the only guy on the staff that was in the building. So I trot up into his office and, you know, we sit down and he closes the door shut. And I, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I first place overall, just about at the all-star break. And he said to me, so you think it's fucking over, don't you? <laughs> you think this is all over. You're already on holiday. And if you're already on fucking holiday, how do you think those guys are feeling about themselves? They've already gone to the Caribbean or Florida or wherever the hell, the hell else they're going. He said, get your ass down in the locker room and get those guys ready to play the goddamn game tonight. <laughs> you know, I was, I was, I had a sweat coming down all over the place after leaving that meeting. And at about five o'clock that night, everybody's in for the seven o'clock game, closed the door, locked it went up to everybody, screamed at him, you fucking guys think it's all over. You're on vacation already. <laughs> it was, it was one. We had a hell of a game. We won up in a tie with Calgary. and It was a good team at the time. And uh, But I swear to God that there's no chance we would have played as well as we played that night had he not just given me the nudge and had I not passed on the nudge to the players. Because But it's, it's all about you know, a responsibility to your teammates, a responsibility to the fans to play hard every night. And I think if you said one thing about Harry's teams for the decades of his tenure 
was they played hard almost every damn night. And uh, he, he wouldn't tolerate it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't tolerate that. He passed that down to everybody that played for him. And it's a shame. You know, I, I think about my career as a coach or player with the Bruins. I think it was, you know, 77, four games short, 76, 78, two games short, 79, I guess you'd call it five games short. When Terry was coaching, I was there too. And I was in the minor leagues. They came up short by like four games. By, by the end of it, I measured five near misses that we had and a total of an average of three games per year. I'd have five rings. I mean, but that was Harry's doing to get everybody to play hard. I mean, he took a lot of heat. I don't think he ever got the respect that he deserved. You know, everybody wanted him to make the big splash at the deadline and no better example than how that can backfire than what you're looking at at today's Boston Bruins, you know, just running out and throwing money at, at somebody you think is an older veteran that somebody's trying to unload for some, whatever value they can get. And he was reluctant to do that. He did it a couple of times, but, you know, I mean, you know, here's the, here's the, you're so damn interesting to listen to because everybody can relate to how you feel about Harry, because I think a lot of people. Uh, He's, impulsive. He's impulsive. <laughs> no, that's, it's, yeah, we have a little of the same stuff in common, right? So, you know, I don't get in as many fights as he did or have as many penalty minutes as he did. But then, and our, or really was as good behind the microphone as he was. But I got to, we don't do this for free, Mike. So just hang on a, a little bit. Yeah. Just have well, to I mean, I did have some pretty good fights, but I, I was not I, on the list of tough guys. Yeah. Well, team, I was way down the list. Well, yeah, way down. Now, come on. You might have been fourth or fifth, but I, or I had a, you know, we. Not well, let me do this commercial first, okay? We just oh, do the damn commercial. Jeez. Hang on just a second, right? Because if I don't, I'll be out of the. What's my know, fee today? Oh, big. You, no, you got a big question coming up after this, okay? So hang oh, on yeah. for a second. We're talking about Cold Springs RV summer sell-off, and it's heating up here in August. First come, first serve for the must-move deals. You didn't do commercials, did you, during the, your broadcast opportunity? Nope, I didn't. No. Okay, well, there you I'm go. I'm going to find out why we didn't do them either. Cole, <laughs> stop it, Lynch, okay? Stop it. Cold Springs RV is making room for the 2024 models. They got to move out the current inventory of the 2023 units. Travel trailers, motorhomes, and pop-ups. The question's coming up in a minute, Melbury. Hang on. The deals will not last. So get to the summer sell-off event right now, Cold Springs RV in Ware, New Hampshire, which is just west of Manchester, north of Haverhill. Online or coldspringsrv.com. You'll be happy you did, and you'll be happy that we are able to pass that along. And now for the question of the week. All right, Mike. Um, Cold Springs RV. Remember John Madden didn't fly. He had a bus. They call it the Madden Cruiser. Yeah. Well, they're, they're in the process of building one for Lobel. It's going to be yeah. called the Lobby Cruiser. So we're going to, we're going to let each guest on the show have the uh, Lobby Cruiser for a week, and you get to drive it cross-country. But you have to pick one person, past, present, alive, or dead, that rides shotgun with you cross-country. Somebody you'd like to have a conversation with, somebody you'd like to listen to. Who would you like riding shotgun with Mike Milberg? Hmm. 
I probably would say Winston Churchill. Oh, whoa. Good one. Oh, very cerebral, as a matter of fact. You ever go to London and see his war rooms and the underground? It's really fascinating. Unbelievable. It's really incredible, um, you know, and I'm sure you've watched The Darkest Hour, the movie. It's a great movie. I mean, it's fun to watch. And, you know, (laughs) I asked Grapes about that, uh, you know, watching the movie, as I thought it was great. I mean, Gary Oldham wins the Academy Award, and Grapes said, ah, they made him look like an old wimp. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how he drew that conclusion, but anyway... um, yeah, he'd be pretty fascinating to listen to, wouldn't he? Yeah. Good pick. We've yeah. had them all kinds across the board, huh? Belichick, Brady, Parcells. You know, speaking of Parcells, when Terry Glenn sprained his ankle and pe- somebody asked Parcells at a press conference uh, when he was going to return, he said, oh, she she's feeling a little <laughs> bit better. I think she'll come back. He didn't lose his job oh. like that, right? Yeah, different time, different era. It's really we we've become a. Uh, I got to choose. No, I don't have to choose my words. I'm looking for the right word. We become we become soft. Yeah, I mean it's really too bad. It's yeah. just, I mean, I don't know. Too sensitive, too caring, too. Yeah, and, and you know. Nobody wants to work as hard anymore. I mean, this remote stuff is weird. I know the COVID had a big impact on it, but I've tried to explain to my kids that work is fun. You know, work has to be, you get, it's, it's what you do with your life. You know, it's got to be fun. I mean, I'm lucky that the things that I had to do were, were, certainly easier and more fun than selling insurance, but you know, you still can be good at that job and you can have fun at it and take pride in it, but it's, we can't even get people to go to, the, to work. We don't even no. make them go to the office. And, I and, the same way. They hate going. They said, Oh my God, this week we have to go into the office three days. I said three days this week. And then you know, you don't have to go in for another two weeks. It's ridiculous. I mean, but it was fun to go to the office and hang yeah. out with at the water cooler be distracted by women. <laughs> <laughs> I had Jack Edwards for a couple of years. That was a little much so much fun. That's a distraction. Oh <laughs> That's a huge distraction. Don't get me started. Oh. I got to one more spot here before. Uh, before. As a matter of fact, I was out to dinner with George Gray last night, Michael. You were. Well, George, uh, I hope Lovell picked up the check last night. But I, got well, I took up my half, okay? I picked up my half. I said. Your half? Okay. Yeah. That's fair enough. Well, if you're thinking about a new vehicle, go where Lowy and Linky go. Go see our friend George Gray at George Gray's Lexington Toyota. We've been customers for years because we know George Gray will treat you right. They're a family-owned and operated dealership that we trust, and you can trust as well. Go see the great George Gray at Lexington Toyota and tell him Lowy is picking him the check from now on. That's we talked deal. about Oppenheimer and Barbie. That's the two things we talked about more well, than that. Last week, Lobel comes on the show and he, he tells uh, – Fred Lim was on with us, and he said that he, he went and saw Barbie the night before the show. Now, would you ever What's wrong with that? Would you ever anticipate Bob LaBelle going to see Barbie? It took my daughters, Mike. Okay, calm down, everybody, calm down about this. Hey, that's that's no, I guess I can understand that to a certain extent, but how was it, Bob? 
It was different. It was different than Oppenheimer, okay? But I would say this, there are different messages in each movie that would resonate to anybody that went to those either one of those shows. There are different Did you see Oppenheimer, Mike? Did I what? Did you see Oppenheimer? I have not. No. You know, why do they have to make movies that are like six days long? I know. That, it was three. It was a long movie. I'll say it. Yeah. you just make it like, make? I want to be entertained. I don't want to be. Did you see it? Did you go? I, I liked it. I didn't I didn't think it was the greatest movie I ever saw. It was three hours. It was three hours. That's a long movie. A long movie. And they could have shortened it up by a whole bunch. Yeah. And I would have liked it more. But, I mean, there were some good performances. But I want my movies to be an hour and 40, hour and 45. Get a good laugh, get a good try. Yeah, short attention span. Absolutely. That's, that's good. <laughs> so, what's next? Well, no, I was just... Uh, I don't know. About you a local sportscaster. So who was your favorite when you were uh, around here? I'll say John Dennis, because that's, that's a loaded question. Where is he now? Florida. Florida. Well, he won't well, come with us. Mention that? I, I know. I will say this, though, that, that, that you guys in your prime were... It was a good era of broadcasting, sports broadcasting. It was a, it was a little competition going on between everybody. It was people were. It gets over. That era is over. There's no. Everybody's got phones. Everybody knows what the stories are before they even yeah. turn on the news at six o'clock. Yeah, I know. I, I my like your kids. My kids are glued to it. You know, you're sitting and watching a movie at home, and everybody's got the phone out. Like, drop the damn thing. Yeah. Just like watch the movie, can't you not? I mean, it's it's really, it is addicting for those guys. I mean, I can put my phone down. I mean, I got to figure out where the hell it is now. Um, but I, I, these guys are just, then they do everything on it. Like, <clears throat> they taught me how to deposit a check with my phone. Like I'm saying, what the hell <laughs> I deposit the check? I want to go to the bank and I want to get my deposit slip that says more money in than I just had a few minutes ago. Yeah, get a lollipop <laughs> and come out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got a I got a check from an insurance company uh, yesterday, and it was a check in my email. And you know, you could probably—I know you probably not probably definitely can do some things on the computer and send it to your bank. But you know, they had a option to print the check, and then you could just use like a regular check and deposit it. And that's what I did. You know, I want to see my check. Of course you do. Because <laughs> you're old school. That's why you're old school. Okay, let's talk about the greatest players of all time. You go. You're the uh, man. What sport? This sport. My sport. Um, okay. You know, I'm probably going to get trouble. I get in trouble for this when I say this. But I'm used to that. Um, the most impossible player for me to defend was Mario Lemieux. Huge wingspan, crazy wingspan. And if he didn't have a back problem or cancer during the course of his career, he probably wins another cup or two. Um, but you could do, we did everything we possibly could to defend against him. And there was no defense against him. There just, there just wasn't, you know, we, we, we had a power, they had a power play and we have a guy stand right beside him. And so it was instead of 
five on four, it was four against three, which reduces the odds in open space. And, you know, he'd do something crazy. He'd come to the front of the net with his shadow and stand beside another defenseman. So it was like two guys on him. And that confused the hell out of our team. But anyway, he was, he was a magnificent player. And number two on the list, maybe I could separate this as a defenseman versus a forward, of course, is Orr. Because watching him, I, I, I never played a game with him. You know, when I got there in 74, he was pretty dinged up. Um, I, I, I segue here. Um, my first practice was in Fitchburg. You know, I had no contract. I'd been called up to play for the Braves for a few games on a tryout. And, uh, and then I got, finally got an invitation at camp. Grapes tells me he's responsible for that because a kid I went to school with lived in Rochester where he lived and said, make sure you look out for Millbury. My name wasn't on the list, according to Grapes, and he got me on the list. Anyway, we go to training camp out in Fitchburg, and they have the, the training camp fiesta, I guess you'd call it. It wasn't just the, it was at the international golf course. And so it was a tennis and golf tournament with the players and, and a few celebrities and whoever else was there. And I get there to play tennis and we're having lunch and there's like silver buckets stuffed with Heineken and red wine is flowing. And it's 12 o'clock in the middle of the day. Like, and I, I had training camp, first training camp tomorrow. So I'm, I'm looking around, we play tennis, come back for dinner. There's one band on the patio over here. Another band takes up over here. Everybody is like this lobster and caviar and whatever. Just the most the players were stumbling around. They were, you know, they came to training camp to get in shape. They didn't train to go to training camp like I did. I mean, I went, we went to college. And so you learned how to stretch and you learned how to warm up and you knew how to do interval training and that sort of stuff. These guys just showed up and some of them had jobs in the summertime. Anyway, this was their first group outing together, and they took full advantage of it. <laughs> anyway, I, I got out of there, and um, my group was on at 10. And the first group, the A group, was on at 8. And I was there at 7.45 because I wanted to watch my heroes. You know, they were, you know, I was 18 when they won in 1970. Here I am four years later, these, these larger-than-life people. So I'm in the locker room and I'm trying to look for some sticks and stuff. And I see Esposito in the corner. It's like, now it's like just about eight o'clock and Espo fidgeting around and doing stuff with his sticks and, you know, in walks or, and I just sort of shrink back away from two of them into the men's room over here, but I can hear what's going on. He said, Phil, get your ass on the ice. We've got a brand new coach. We didn't win a championship last year, and you're going to be late for the first fucking day of practice. Get out there. Oh, my God. I was just – I was just – but I I practiced with him once, and uh, he just twirled the puck over around, you know, skated past six or seven people three or four times in a row, and then he'd pass it over to me, and I'd slam it off the glass. <laughs> it was just uh, – it was like – dreamland to play with him yeah. and you know no nobody needs any 
tutorial on his greatness. I mean, it was speed and his incredible courage. Um, maybe recklessness at time that caused him to go to areas that would leave him vulnerable and, and then thus his career cut short, but what a meteor meteoric type of a career this guy had. So he's on the, my list, top defenseman with Lemieux top forward, second top forward for me behind Lemieux is Messier. It's not Gretzky because if you remember, they won four in a row or four in five years, I think. And they played together in Edmonton before Wayne got traded to Los Angeles. And then Messier won again. And he won again. I think he won one more with Edmonton when O'Reilly, they played against O'Reilly's coach team. And he won one more playing against my team. And he won another one in New York. So um, if he was paired against, matched up against Gretzky, he'd punch him in the mouth and beat him into submission. And that's why I have him at the second spot and, and then Wayne, who was a great player and gifted, but, you know, fluffy numbers. And he, he believe me, when it was seven to two, he wasn't stopping. He was looking for the eighth goal or the eighth, you know, his eighth point of the night. But he was a great player. I just. Don't you think Howe was like that? Gordy Howe was like I, that? I don't. I, I played against Gordy when he was in Hartford playing with his sons. And it was a shadow of himself. And so I don't, I can't match up with him, but uh, I, I, I mean, I heard he was that way, uh, but I, I mean, he couldn't skate. Like you just can't, those errors have to be judged differently because the abilities of the players have just grown exponentially. The training, the skating, the, the equipment, everything is so different now than it was then, but, in my time and the guys that I really played against, um, those were the guys that I think were the greatest players of that generation. And I think the greatest goaltender for me was Marty Brodeur. You know, he was just, I mean, he's, I only met him once or twice in, in some meetings, league meetings, but bubbly personality, big and goal gamer was, he was a, so that's my all time list. Oh, Good. Pretty good, Bob. Speechless, uh, Bob. No, yeah. I'm just saying now that matches my list perfectly. <laughs> You're the best, Milbury. It's great. Well, I uh, switching sports. You guys must have seen Air. The move. The, the, yeah, the, good. it's good, isn't it? It is very good. I, I liked it. The the, um, the Lakers movie with uh, John C. Riley. Which I is also good. Part one last night. Uh, oh, it's it's a uh, it's a little different, but yeah. I'll leave you with my one Larry Bird story. Who, by the way, got into a remember that fight he got into with Chelsea. Yeah, Chelsea's, Chelsea's. yeah. Right. He, the guy he fought was Mike Harlow, who Colgate. lives down here in Colgate. Guy, right? Yeah. Tough as nails. He was tough as nails, Mike Harlow. And uh, you know, but anyway, speaking of the Havlicek fishing tournament. They used to take a charter from, right. from 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 Logan 
to Martha's Vineyard or depending on the venue or Nantucket. And, you know, I used to see the Celtics all the time and, you know, but Mikhail used to come down and have beers with us, but we never saw a bird, but I, I got on the plane and I'm sitting on the plane and he walks on the plane and he looks at me and these are the only two words he's ever spoken to me. He said, hi, Mike. And my heart went a flutter, you know, <laughs> really? Bird knows who the hell I am. That's pretty cool. That's pretty yeah. cool. It was pretty cool. It was. pretty cool. And he almost got into a fight at the Havlicek Fishing Tournament, too. Yeah, that's right. That would have been that easily. But I <laughs> clearly held back my impetuosity. I would have paid money for that. <laughs> everybody everybody jumped out of the hot tub because they thought that we, two of us were going to be going, going at it right there. I paid money to see that one. <laughs> uh, All okay. right, guys. Mike, you did a great job. Thank you so much for being with right. us. Stay Thanks. well. Yeah, you too, bud. Good to see you. Good Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Thanks again. All right. Unacred Boston is a presentation of Unacred Media, a Burke Advertising LLC company. For show information, visit unacredboston.com. Thank you.